Within the lesson tonight, I want to talk for just a little while tonight about lifting up holy hands. You know, it's a verse that we don't commonly talk about. It might be something that, that we don't necessarily look at a lot. And I've heard it said before that within the church it says, well, the members of the Church of Christ, they, they follow the Bible, but yet when it comes to 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 8 and the reference to holy hands, well, they don't do that. There's a couple other verses that people have, have drawn to and they said, well, the church, they don't do that. And sometimes I wonder if even amongst our own, amongst the Christians in which uh, meet with the saints, it might be that we think, hmm, why don't we do that? And so for tonight, for just a little while, I want to take the time that we have to look at 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 8, and we're going to dissect and, and dive into the verse and strive to understand what God's design is or his pattern is for prayer in 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 8. Now as we, as we read the passage, understanding that we will look at the context just a little bit because context always has a uh, great way of helping with your problems. It has a great way of explaining part of Scripture so that we can un understand it more fully. In 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 8 it says, I desire therefore that the men pray everywhere. At the very beginning, I want to just take this, this first little section in the verse. Now, it wasn't that long ago that Mike talked about within God's design in the church, with, God, with God's design in the household and how that works, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. However, we see at the very beginning, in 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 8, we see a pattern in prayer. The pattern in, in prayer that we're going to notice here is that of public prayer. We can understand that as we look at this verse amongst others, but in 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 8, as it says, I desire therefore that the men, now if you go back to the original, this is not a generic word that means mankind, but rather a term that literally means the man. Now, to fully understand it, it's made a little bit easier when you read it in context with verse 9 to, to ensure that we understand there's a difference in roles. In verse 9, he goes on to say, in like manner also, that the women. So he's got to compare and contrast. He said, the men are to do this in verse 8. And then he goes on in verse 9 and he says, there's a job at hand as well. So in verse 9, he says that the women also adorn themselves in modest apparel with propriety and moderation, not with braided hair or gold or pearls, or costly clothing. Now, that's not to say that the man shouldn't do the same. It's not to say that the man shouldn't dress in a, in a proper, modest, pat modest pattern. However, God gives two different guidelines. And he, he, he sets the guideline for the man, and he sets the guideline for the woman, and we see the contrast of the roles. Understanding that the role within the, des the design in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8, is he says that the men pray everywhere. Now, understanding the term everywhere. As you think about everywhere, everywhere does not mean that mom is not allowed to pray when she's at home. In fact, there's a lot of times that I'm not at home and I know that Anna and Charlie still have the opportunity to pray, for instance, for their meal. Or it could be to pray because of a boo-boo. It could be to pray because of something that's going on that's important to the child or important to the mother and they have the need, the desire to pray at that time. 
Now, the everywhere is not an implication of a woman can't pray anywhere, but rather it is when you're out, when they're in the public scene, as they are the, the lead role in the group, they would then have the men pray in 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 9. It goes on to explain it just a little bit further. We can go ahead and drop down all the way to verse 12. And it says, And I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. And the design there is the authority, not to take the leadership role. There's been a new uh, idea going around the brotherhood that it, it's not a woman taking authority if they stand up and preach, if the man says, hey, you take it. However, that's not how it works. Just like within the home, I don't say, Charlie, if you think we shouldn't eat dinner, then we won't do it. Or I don't say, Charlie... If you don't want to go to bed now because that's how you feel, then you have the authority to make your decisions. Rather, within God's design as a parent in the household, we have rules. We have guidelines that we have to follow. And within God's word, within God giving the man the authority, not only the authority, but he's got the job. He's got the task. He has uh, the ability... And therefore, it gives him the responsibility. He doesn't have the ability to pass off the task at will because of God's design. So, in 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 12, it, it explains, he says, I do not permit the woman to teach her to have authority over a man, meaning the authority he. She doesn't take or usurp the authority, doesn't take the lead role within the public setting, within, obviously, the worship. But also 1 Corinthians chapter 14, I told you I wouldn't spend long on this, so this is the last verse we'll look at. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 34, it says, Let your women keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but they are to be submissive, as the law also says. If you look at 1 Corinthians 14 in the context, they're talking about having a worship service, and there are people that are performing uh, miracles, or they're speaking in tongues, they have the ability to prophesy, and they said, well, I want to uh, be able to prophesy. And he says, look, if one starts to prophesy, then... You stand by. You quit talking. He says that there's not going to be everybody speaking at once. And then when he gets to the woman, he says that the woman is to be silent. And within that, I believe within God's guidelines, it's not that there's a hate or a disdain, but rather God has by design. He goes on to explain it, how that through the creation, the man was created first and then the woman came into play. And as we consider public prayer... As we consider 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 8, I don't believe I could adequately talk about 1 Timothy 2 and verse 8 without understanding that God had a design or a pattern in prayer. But, as we mentioned the term everywhere, uh, we see in 1 Corinthians 14 and verse 34, it says they are not to speak. They're not permitted to speak. They're to keep silent in the church. Obviously, it's not that of singing, whereas we have the command for all of us, speaking to yourselves in psalms, speaking to one another. We have a task at hand, so it requires that of speaking. However, we're talking about a leadership role. They wouldn't take the lead in being over one another or over the assembly. All right, but notice, obviously, within prayer that there is private prayer. In 1 Samuel chapter 2, and verse 1, Hannah there, 
being so excited, it says, And Hannah prayed and said, My heart rejoices in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. I smile at my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. We see the, the prayer of Hannah. It's not wrong for Hannah to pray wherever she was. However, the design is we've got private prayer versus that of taking the authority or the leadership role. The same thing happens in Luke chapter 2. A New Testament verse, just in case we get the idea that uh, women could pray in the Old Testament and they can't pray in the New Testament. In Luke chapter 2, we see a woman that's praying. Now this woman, Anna, had given her heart to God. She had given her desires, her life really to God as she's a, a widow woman in Luke chapter 2. In verse 36, it says, Now there was one Anna, a prophetess, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was of great age and had lived with a husband seven years uh, from her virginity. And this woman was a widow of about 84 years. So at this point, she is a very old woman. And it says, Who did not depart? Now, don't think that I'm saying 84 is the very old woman. If you read it in context, there's the 84 the years that she'd been widowed. So then you tie in the years that she was married and... Let's just assume that she got married at 10, so let's just say she's really old. Okay, I didn't want you to think that I was saying 84 is old, so just so we clear that up. All right, so back to Luke chapter 2. In verse 37, uh, it says, Who did not depart from the temple but served God with fastings and prayers day and night, or night and day. We, this woman, Anna, the prophetess, was engaged in prayer often. It says night and and day. So it's not wrong that a woman pray. However, the, the idea or the design behind God's design would be that of the public prayer and taking the authority, uh, exercising authority in 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 12. All right, so we got through that. We see public prayer, and let's go back to 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 8, and we'll notice the second part of our lesson. 1 Timothy chapter 2. And verse 8, it says, I desire therefore that the men pray everywhere. Point number 2, lifting up holy hands. All right, now we're going to talk about the, pro the posture in prayer, the, the way that we stand, the way that we look, the way that we appear in prayer. We notice the pattern in prayer. Now let's notice the posture. Within the posture in prayer... There are many things that we, that we should notice and understand. However, my disclaimer is, before we get started, if 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 8 was the only example of prayer that we had in the Scriptures, if it was the only time that we see a Scripture, and within it, it mentions, it says, lifting up holy hands, I do believe, by design, we would follow the pattern that is presented, meaning we would lift holy hands. However... We need to better understand what the verse means as we consider the posture in prayer. First off, let's look at uh, the lifting of holy hands. Within this term, it would have been something that would have been very well understood uh, to the Jews. As they, thought about, as they thought about prayer, there was oftentimes in the Old Testament, and I just wrote down a few, that lifting holy hands or lifting hands as they were praising God would be mentioned. In Acts chapter 17... And verse 11, there's a, there's a war going on. There was something special for them. It would have been well known among them. In Exodus chapter 17 and verse 11, as they're at battle, we see that, that Moses there holds up his hands, and when his hands are held high, things are going well. 
We see that when his hands start to droop, that things don't go so well, and so we see some friends come to help prop up his arms. So go ahead and look, notice in verse 11 it says, And so it was, when Moses held up his hands, that Israel prevailed, and when he let his hand down, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands became very heavy, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he had one on one side and the other on the other side, and his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. So Joshua defeated Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. Within battle, we see here that Moses held his hands. So just thinking about hands, it was something that took place. If you look at Leviticus chapter 9, in Leviticus chapter 9 and verse 22, Aaron here lifts his hands when he blesses the people. It says, then Aaron lifted his hands hand toward the people, blessed them, and came down from offering the sin offering and burnt offering and peace offering. Uh, within, within preaching, there's often times that you get excited and you might uh, lift your hands as you talk to the crowd. We see here that Aaron lifted his hands. We see the psalmist in Psalm 63, it says, thus I will bless you while I live. I will lift up my hands in your name. In the name of the Lord, it says they lifted up their hands. It would have been nothing new to the Jews. Look also at Psalm 134, verse 2. It says, lift up your hands in the sanctuary. And notice, while they lift their hands, it says, and bless the Lord. Go on to Psalm 141, verse 2. It says, let my prayer be set before you as incense, the lifting up of my hands as the evening of sacrifice. All right, so all this Old Testament passage that we just looked at, is so that we can understand within the Jewish eyes, within, within their mindset, they could understand when there was something made reference to lifting of holy hands. You can also look at Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 6, where the children of Israel's lifted hands as they worshipped. It says, And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. Then all the people answered, Amen, Amen, while lifting up their hands. All right. But... In understanding, biblically, 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 8, the lifting up of holy hands, we also need to consider the whole. We need to consider what, what all God has said. So I would encourage you to take a little bit with me, and we'll go on another journey as we just did, as we consider other postures in prayer. We see the lifting of holy hands, but that's not it. So in Mark chapter 11... In verse 25, Mark chapter 11 and verse 25, we see a little different posture. It says, And whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him, that your Father in heaven may also forgive you your trespasses. Okay, one other accepted, one other noted posture that was used within prayer to God is that of standing. 1 Samuel chapter 1 and verse 26 says, Oh, my Lord, as your soul lives, my Lord, I am the... Uh, okay, sorry. In 1 Samuel chapter 1 and verse 26, let me, uh, let me uh, get to it. In 1 Samuel chapter 1 and verse 26, it says, And she said, Oh, my Lord, as your soul lives, my Lord, I am the woman who stood by you here praying to the Lord. We talked about earlier uh, women praying. We see, I stood by you praying. 
we see reference once again another posture in prayer. So not only do we see the lifting of holy hands, but we also see that of a posture in prayer where they stood. <clears throat> Psalms chapter 95, or Psalm 95 actually. In Psalm 95 and verse 6, we see another posture. We'll notice there that they were kneeling. It says, oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, within their, their worship to God. Uh, you can also look at 2 Chronicles 29, verse 20, 29. We see kneeling. But I'm afraid I'll run out of time, so we're going to keep going. Genesis chapter 24, it says they did it with a bowed head. In Genesis chapter 24 and verse 26, it says, Then the man bowed down his head and worshipped the Lord. In John chapter 17, we see Jesus, and it says, Jesus spoke these words in context. We understand that he's praying. It says, And he lifted up, lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. Within Christ himself, within him praying, it says that Jesus spoke these words as he lifted up his eyes to heaven, which would be completely contrary to the kneeling that we see prior to this. So we see kneeling, we see bowing, we see standing, we see the reference made to that of lifting holy hands. And we also see <coughs> Jesus that prayed with uplifted eyes. You know, it's been mentioned before, as a young boy, I thought about, is it okay if if I pray with my eyes open as we drive down the road. And you think about, well, is it okay? Because, you know, from a young age, your parents taught you, you know, close your eyes, we're going to pray. Bow your heads, we're going to pray. A lot of times we teach our kids to put your hands together. The closest thing I believe that we would have to holy hands being there is no literal, is this holy hands, is this holy hands, is this holy hands, is this holy hands. There is no literal holy hands. The closest thing that we have that, for instance, if you saw a picture, would be the idea of a child praying. We see something that's a pureness. However, as we understand within, within the guidelines of parenting that we ask our kids to bow their heads because we need to avoid distractions. We ask our kids to fold their hands because kids need to avoid distractions. We ask kids to close their eyes because we need to avoid distractions. The idea behind prayer was to be focused on it. All right. If you look at 1 Samuel chapter 1 and verse 13, it says, Now Hannah, as she's praying and beseeching God at this time, and Eli actually goes on to think she's drunk because of what she's doing, but it says, And as Hannah spoke in her heart it says only her lips moved so we see not only do we have jesus that's looking up to heaven and speaking but now we have hannah that's quietly not saying a word so we see so many different positions or postures of prayer but in understanding we need to understand that there is such a thing as un unacceptable design in prayer. We see all these different postures in prayer. Do I believe it's wrong for someone to lift their hands? I do not. Do I think it's a misunderstanding? In a lot of ways, yes, and we'll still get there. Do I think it's wrong for someone to kneel? Absolutely not. I think it's a great thing. If you want to stand and look up to heaven as Christ did, I think it's a great thing. If you want to pray quietly to yourself, I think it's a great thing. If you want to have your eyes opened, it's a great thing. 
Within God's design for posture in prayer, we have no specific, thou shalt do this. In fact, all the patterns we have show us that it was not a position in prayer. Look at Matthew chapter 6. When Jesus teaches them to pray, he has a lot that he tells us that really adds to our understanding of how prayer really works. In Matthew chapter 6, <coughs> Billy told me he brought me a water, and it's there. Matthew chapter 6, verse 1, I told him that I didn't need it, and now here I'm up here coughing. Matthew chapter 6, verse 1 says, Take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them, otherwise you have no reward from your Father in heaven. Now on a side note, we're not into prayer yet, but he says, don't do whatever you do, don't do it to be seen. All right? He basically reiterates that as you drop down to verse 5. He says, And when you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites. Don't be like the hypocrites. And it says, For they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners and on the streets that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. He goes on to say, But when you pray, go into your room, and you have, when you have shut your door, pray to your Father who is in a secret place, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. All right, so as we look at Matthew chapter 6 and verse 6, he says, Go into your closet. Go to a secret place. So does that make it wrong then to come together as we come together to worship and pray in front of people? Absolutely not. Why? Because back in verse 5, what is the entire point? There was a problem with hypocrites. There was a problem with doing everything because I want people to know that I am a holy person. Okay, in understanding 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 8, that is really the biggest thing that we can understand. Pray lifting holy hands. What we're really talking about is an English word that doesn't make much sense to me, but I understand it when I, when I follow along with it. It is synecdoche, which means it's something that's small that represents a larger and much greater thing. I talked about holy hands, and I said, what's our holy hands? How do we know? Like, what about this makes it whole? Absolutely nothing. I might have a splinter in my hands, and sometimes that would be a hole, but it's spelt different. We understand that, that the holy hands represent a holy heart. The holy hands represent a holy person. It would have been no different to say lifting a holy nose to the Lord. It would have been no different to say lifting holy eyes to the Lord, lifting holy hair to the Lord, lifting holy feet to the Lord. It's not about that. It's not about the thing. It's about the Christian. In Matthew chapter 6 and verse 1, he talks about the hypocrite and in completely opposite of what we would think if we're thinking in literal terms where we see the person and he says, lifting holy hands to the Lord. We see something completely different because they go out on the street corner and we've got the hypocrite that says, look at me as I pray to God. Did you notice that, that I am a holy person? Did you notice that I'm a Christian? Look, I raised my hands when I prayed. And so in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 1, in understanding holy hands, Jesus laid it all out on the line and said, Look, don't be hypocritical to be seen. He said, Go into the closet and pray. 
Go on in verse 7. It says, And when you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Therefore, do not be like them, for your Father knows the things you have need of before you ask him. So we see an unacceptable design in prayer. And what was it? The idea of to draw attention to me. Do I think it's wrong for us to pray raising our hands if, if we so felt? Absolutely not. However, if within the person the idea was to be seen, which oftentimes it would have to be in my mind just because within our society, within, within the area in which we live, it's not the common practice, but within the, our society, we've got to ensure that we're not doing it so that people look at me. And so as we consider that of lifting holy hands, I do believe if you want to lift your hands, knock yourself out. Is that what the verse means? Absolutely not. He says, present yourself as a pure and a whole person. All right, we better go on. I forgot, forgot time was running out. All right, humbleness is required in prayer. As we see at the end of Matthew chapter 6, verse 5 through 8, we see that we've got the humble person. Well, you see it again in Luke chapter 18. In Luke chapter 18... Starting in verse 10, it says, Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. Pharisee stood and prayed thus within himself, God, I thank you, I'm not like all these other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even this tax collector. Talk about a hypocrite. He's pointing at the fellow and saying, Look, I'm glad I'm not him because I'm a holy person. And he was lifting up his hands and he said, Look at me. All right, so we see, we see the picture go on in verse 11. It says, The Pharisees stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even this tax collector. He said, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the tax collector, standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes. He wouldn't so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. We see a difference. Because we see somebody that's humble. He didn't need to be seen. He didn't care what other people said. He didn't care what other people thought. But he did care about his prayer to God. Within posture in prayer, if we could stress one thing, the key would be humbleness, holiness. Mark chapter 11, verse 25. Within prayer, I think we can't, we can't talk about prayer without noticing that of forgiveness. Forgiving others is required in prayer. If we're going to have a prayer life, if we're going to offer prayers to God, first off, we better first think about not having aught against another, not having an enemy or a grudge with someone. In Mark chapter 11 and verse 25, it says, and whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, it says forgive him. Notice, that... Meaning, so that, in order that, the Father in heaven may also forgive you your trespasses. Within understanding that of forgiveness, it's required that we forgive so that we can be forgiven. Because that's God's design. As we talk about the holy hands, the holy hands represent a holy person. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 5 says, Everyone, proud in heart, is an abomination to the Lord. Psalm 51, sometimes in the youth group, we sing a song, uh, Create in me a clean heart. It's actually, it's drawn exactly from verse 10. It's 
directly the verse that we actually sing, but it says, Create in me a clean heart, O God. And I was thinking as, as we came in here, I didn't have a special song that I, that I had picked out, but we sing a lot of songs that mean something other than the literal terms that are, that are used. We sang the first song, I wrote it down, it says, Prayer will change the night today. I'll tell you what, if you go home and you go to bed and you wake up at midnight, and you pray from midnight to 1 o'clock that the night turns to day, if you go outside at 1 o'clock, I'm telling you right now, it's still going to be night. Now, it might be morning, but it's still night. It's 1 a.m. in the morning. When we sing the song, prayer will change the night today, it's not so much the literal statement, but rather the understanding. It changed your life. You know, I've known a lot of times in my life where I might be in the dumps and I begin to pray. And when I'm done with my prayer and before I say amen, I notice that my frown has turned upside down. I notice that my life has changed within me. I really, by design, when I came up here, I said, I'm sure that we'll sing a song tonight that has some type of phrase that means something different. I don't remember what the title is of 432, but in 432 it was the same thing. We don't look at the, the literal phrase, but we understand the meaning of it. You know, it's funny, sometimes we sing standing on the promises while we're sitting down. Does that change anything? Absolutely not, because it has nothing to do with standing. Just like 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 8 has nothing necessarily do with holding up your hands it was something that they had done but it's not something that is required posture in prayer is important but we understand there's unacceptable posture which really just goes to that of the heart and then we see all these other examples of posture that is used all right we've got to hurry the final final point first timothy chapter 2 the end of the verse, we'll notice pureness in prayer. This is really what the verse was about. Pureness in prayer. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, in verse 8, if you follow along, at the end of the verse, it says, Without wrath and doubting. Without wrath and doubting. Going back, lifting holy hands is further explained when it says without wrath and doubting. You've got the evil in your heart. You cannot present yourselves as a holy person. Lifting holy hands means presenting yourself to God as a righteous person. Not the person that has ought with his brother. Not the person that has evil thoughts in his mind against another while he goes to pray, but rather we see pureness in prayer. It's without anger. It's without argument would probably be a better understanding of uh, wrath and doubting. Doubting would be that of argument. Without wrath, without anger towards another. Praying with bitterness towards another. That's what we see. Luke chapter 18, verse 11, it says the Pharisee stood and prayed and thus with himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. If there's not an example of bitterness towards another, I believe the Pharisee nailed it. He said, look at me. We see the bitterness towards the other. He prayed down towards the person. 
Basically, he's taking his vengeance out in prayer. He says, I thank you, God, I'm not like this tax collector. Within our prayer, our prayer needs to be pure, without anger, without argument, without doubting. I think of James chapter 1 and verse 6 when it says, But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. Talking especially about wisdom, you've got the person that's, that, that wants wisdom, and he says, if you ask for it, you'll get it. Without doubting, believing, understanding that God can do it. That God can give them wisdom. In Matthew chapter 6 and verse 12, it's without grudge. It says, forgive us our debts. And then he says, as we forgive our debtors. Same thing, the forgiving. Without a grudge, without holding this ought against another. Without sin, without iniquity. Psalm 66 and verse 18 says, If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. They hold all this sin up in their heart. And then they want to offer prayers. They go out and live as evil as they can, and then they want to offer prayers. Within prayer, the design, but behind God's design is that of pureness. When we say standing on the promises, we mean living by God's word. When we say lifting holy hands to the Lord, we mean presenting yourself pure to God. As you think about the many different things that we find in Scripture, as you think about the many different passages, I want to tell you that nothing makes me sadder than to hear someone that's a member of the church say, well, we don't observe 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 8. We don't observe such and such verse. Within understanding God's word, we need to be studying to understand that we know what we do and why we do it. Within God's design, we've got the Bible to look at. We can be like those in Berea, where it says these were more noble than those in Thessalonica in that they searched the scriptures daily. They received it with readiness of mind and they searched the scriptures daily to see whether those things were so. We need to be studying so that we can know. Well, let's say 1 John chapter 2 and verse 3. Hereby do we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. By design tonight, I wanted to look at lifting holy hands because I think we need to understand why we do what we do. In understanding that God has all authority, we want to make sure that we pattern our lives after it. But in understanding that, I also want you to know that by design, we want to make sure that every person has the opportunity to obey the gospel of Christ. Within God's design, God had a plan for mankind. Before the earth was created... God had a plan that Christ, his son, could be that perfect sacrifice. The blood that could take away the sin of the world. And we see the sacrifice, the fulfillment of the, the Old Testament in that of Christ coming and being this perfect sacrifice that could wash away all sins. And so we see the design in the New Testament, how that people can put their faith in Christ, understanding that he's the Messiah. They can make a change in their life. We see in Acts 2 and verse 38 where it says, repent. They make a change in their life and be baptized and turn it over to God. Repent and be baptized, but I don't want you to think that it stops there. Because then we've got a life to live. We've got to continue in the work of the Lord going forward. 
As I think about living for God, I want to make sure that each one of us does it together. If you haven't given your life to Christ, I want to ask you tonight, why not? Why do you wait, oh brother? Why do you wait, individual? Why not now? If you haven't given your life to Christ, I encourage you, make the change tonight. It's very simple. If you'll come to the front at the, at the end of the at the end of the invitation song or at the very beginning of the invitation song, if you'll come down, we'd love to meet with you and talk to you and help you to, to understand God's design and to help you follow God's pattern and plan for our lives. If you haven't given your life to Christ, do it tonight. Just stand and sing.